Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm back with Joe Martineau and Mark Pedroli. Welcome back, guys. Good morning. Great to be here. We talked already about the Sunshine Act of Missouri. We spent a nice long episode getting deep into how it works, but sometimes it doesn't work so well and you need to engage in litigation. So we're going to be talking about what is a knowing violation. Who wants to take a stab at that? I'll let you. <laughs> well, I think the courts have struggled with that and most of the time. They've found that there was not a knowing violation. Maybe we should mention what's at stake here. If you show a knowing violation, there can be a civil fine up to $1,000, and then it triggers the attorney's fees. So this is not academic at all. This is real It's the attorney's fees. I mean, $1,000 is is, is a slap on the wrist. Right. There is a case, uh, Strake versus Robin Wood, West Community Improvement District. It was a uh, Supreme Court decision of 2015, and it is cause for concern on the part of a public governmental body because there, the attorney advised that you did not need to disclose this document. It was a settlement agreement reached in some litigation, a personal injury piece of litigation. And as anybody who's informed about the statute realizes, the consideration paid by a public governmental body in settling uh, litigation against a public governmental body is a public record. You can't conceal it. The attorney advised that, well, there's a contractual provision in the settlement agreement that you shall not disclose this. So therefore, best practice would be not to disclose it. And the public governmental body decided not to disclose it. The Supreme Court found that was a knowing violation. You knew the statute. Right. The attorney told you what the statute said. So even though his advice was that you didn't need to disclose it, that's still a knowing violation and you're liable for the uh, $1,000. And I think it was 5000 in attorney's fees or something like that. So, you know, it's not enough just to rely upon counsel if it's the counsel's advice is just is fallacious from the very beginning. The other thing to keep in mind, I think, you know, this is more from the standpoint of people who are on a public governmental body. There is potential liability that you have as an individual. And the statute says that a member of a public governmental body who disagrees with the closure can make their position known. Now, they don't do it in public. They have to do it within the public governmental body. It should be reflected in the minutes, obviously, and then they're protected. Mm -hmm. So if you're on a school board, for instance, and you want to say, hey, wait a minute, this is flat out wrong. We can't have this discussion in closed session. We shouldn't be doing it. You can protect yourself. And I think that's very important because especially nowadays, I mean, there tends to be a lot of uh, political disagreements, shall we say. And you might find yourself in that position as a elected public official on a public governmental body who just doesn't agree with what they're doing. Make your position known. Make sure it's reflected in the minutes. And you can't rely on the advice of counsel, which I think was one of the decisions in strike, which was, a, I thought, an excellent decision because it was pretty obvious. And it also puts your attorney in the middle. So if you're doing discovery, I think the takeaway from this is ask for those communications. We do. We ask for the attorney communications. If they want to log those and put them in a privilege log, go ahead. But then go to the court and tell them you want an in-camera review. Have those looked at. Let them know that you're going after those, that they can't just say, well, my attorney told me I don't have to give you this public record because we don't think that's how it works. So there's a chance that those communications will be discoverable, if not by the plaintiff, then certainly by the court where you can prove. I mean, for example, if the attorney says, look, the mayor doesn't want this out. This has nothing to do with the law, right? 
that would be another example of a smoking gun. And I think there was just an article about this a few days ago where uh, there was an email that showed maybe uh, the intent to design by copying the city councilor's office on use of force incidents from the St. Louis City Jail. And I think that was just in the paper by Taylor Harris two or three days ago. Um, yeah, that's not unique to Sunshine Law issues right. either. I mean, you can't clothe yourself with an attorney-client privilege just by including the attorney on the document. Right. And, and I think we as lawyers yeah. all know that. Laypersons don't necessarily know that, but the attorney should be advising them that's not good enough. You're right. We had an 83 case in federal court where, again, it was St. Louis County government produced a 340-page privilege log because there was a, a lawyer maybe CC'd on all these communications. And with the time you have to spend to go through and fight these and try to get these documents, it's absurd, but I see it constantly. I see lawyers representing governments do this all the time as a tactic because they think that just simply copying someone is a way to create a privilege. And as Joe said, it's not. There's a whole other degree. You have to be seeking counsel or you have to be given counsel. It's not just you can CC somebody. But three days ago, the director of the jail in St. Louis City thought that just by CCing somebody, they could keep it confidential. So it tells you the perceptions of a leader of a major government entity just a few days ago. So that's something we should all keep in mind. This continues to happen. And I think with regard to purposeful, there's slightly higher burden of proof that you have to prove that there was a design to violate the law. Conscious design, intent, right. or plan is language right. that I found. But what does that mean? Well, it, it, again, back to the attorney general's office, that was a conscious design and intent and plan. They went off government servers, if you can believe that, after all the criticism of Hillary Clinton in prior days, how Josh Hawley went off the government server. So he had AG employees get off the AG server and go on their Gmail accounts to communicate with his private consultants in Washington, D.C., that was clearly a design and an attempt to evade a sunshine request by, in this case, the DSCC, who was probably advocating in some way on behalf of his competition, which was the Democratic nominee, Claire McCaskill. Now, she had every right or they had every right to get those documents and they hit them. And it was conscious and it was a design. And that was Judge Beatum deciding that in Cole County. So, again, you can win these. I think there's a lot more cases than people believe in which the government is consciously designing and they're not giving you documents for a reason that's wholly divorced from what the law says. It's usually political because there's just so many political animals. Even in municipal cases with TIFs and taxes and local developments, these turn into big political issues, heated. And sometimes the developer has got the mayor on their side and you know you have these fights. And then you have the residents come out. I've seen these, I've been involved in them. And that's what happens. And there is this huge motive to not want to give you the information because they want to quickly pass this. And it goes to Joe's point about timing. The timing is critical because you're going to have a public meeting on the development or on the TIF or on the tax. And the public meeting is scheduled for July 1. And you're requesting this stuff on June 1. And guess when they want to give you the records? December. It doesn't do any good. So that's why when they give you the records on December, take them all the way, try to prove knowing and purposeful, get the attorney's fees. One thing that public governmental bodies should always keep in mind, now, I don't know that I've ever seen this remedy imposed in any case dealing with the Sunshine Law, but there is a provision in there, and it goes to what uh, Mark was talking about when he talked about TIFs and things like that, and it being the water being over the bridge or over the dam. 
the court can undo what's been done if there's been a violation. It has to be significant public interest involved. I can't recite the exact language from the statute. Even if I could, who knows what that language means? It's in the eyes of the beholder. But there is that threat that's out there that where you've got these citizen-involved issues about developments and things like that. That is something that the mayor and everybody else should keep in mind, that you could be spending all this money and all this time, and you may have a judge who's just bold enough to say, you can't do this. So you've got your foundation laid for the building, but all of a sudden, it's not going forward. So when you need the information urgently, it might be good to put that in the sunshine request. That's a good point. That yes. this is something that I'm going to take seriously. I will pursue it. If you don't get it to me now, it may jeopardize yeah. whatever decisions we've good point. made. Good point. Part of our, the airport litigation, that was the prayer of our relief. Oh, okay. It was a big prayer. It's a big deal. We cited that part of the statute, and we said that because, and this is important, I think it's more important for closed meetings than it is for closed records. We said that we were going to ask the judge to undo everything about Airport Pride and make them start over and do it right. And I think it was a serious threat, and I think we're going to win on that. Not that we need to now because they dropped it, but Mayor Krusen, you know, this was about 15 or 20 days after we filed that lawsuit. She ended up pulling the plug on it. But I think a looming threat, and I think she probably took it seriously, was that a judge was going to pull the plug on it before her consideration to do so. So, yeah, that's a big deal, an important point. And there's another uh, quick point I wanted to make going back to individual liability. And there is a whistleblower provision. I try to tell everybody this because almost no government official knows there's a whistleblower provision in the law. Part of the statute says you can dissent and you won't be held responsible. There's a, another provision that says you can be held individually liable. And this is a very obscure, and I've never seen it litigated. We have litigated this, but in the cases we have, it's settled. But in almost every case, the government official is indemnified anyway. So even if there is individual liability held against them, the government's going to indemnify them for their actions based on a contract that they have with their employees. So it doesn't really mean a lot, but there's another section that says, I think it's if someone reports a violation of the Sunshine Law, they are not to be retaliated against. So, the, I mean, look, if I'm a government employee and I see someone violating the law, this statute would seem to protect me and my job from retaliation if I came forward. That's quite an inducement. And if you're a civil service employee, that might be something you want to take a hard look at. So the difference between knowing and purposeful on the statute as far as fines is $1,000 for knowing and $5,000 for purposeful. How do you count the violations? Let's assume that you have a sunshine request, your client sends a request and it asks for 10 things. Let's assume the court says, okay, I have a purposeful violation. How many violations? Is that 10 or is that one request or has that been litigated? Our position has been that's 10 or more. It depends on how many violations they have within those. But if you have five requests on one, well, we make that clear from the outset. We have five sunshine requests. It might be on one letter, one paper. but there are five requests in here and they're each to be treated uniquely and individually and they need to be denied or given for each one. And I always give advice to people, if you think one of those questions is going to tie up your request for years, break them up. Send the simple request first. Get the thing that you know you want, that discrete bit of information. Send the complicated one in a separate letter because they see it as one. And then when you file the lawsuit, make sure that you say that, you know, each violation in the airport litigation, I think we've alleged there are hundreds of violations each time they wanted to close meeting, each time they got off the reasons they wanted to do a closed meeting, and then all the documents, all the discrete and different documents that they closed. 
We consider those each an individual, and there is case law to support this. I mean, there's not a lot, but I think there's one or two cases out there that supports the notion that you can have 10 or 15 violations emanating out of one request. We always try to segregate or separate the requests into unique categories and then make it as a separate request to help and you know avoid that issue. Let's talk about attorney's fees. Let's assume that the court says you have a knowing or purposeful violation here, and now it's the case that you have your records, you got that declaration that this was a knowing or purposeful violation. Now it's time to talk about attorney's fees. How much discretion does a court have as far as whether they will award them at all or how much they will award? Well, I mean, I would argue that the judge doesn't have discretion at all if there is a finding of purposeful. So they have to be awarded. Then after, so for example, this is just recent, Judge Beatum awarded attorney's fees in our case against the uh, Hawley Attorney General Office. And then the next step is to file an application for those attorney's fees, showing your time, the amount, an hour, and the reasonable rates and all of that. Do they have discretion within that? Yes, they do. They have a lot. They can give you, you know, your full price of what you've asked for is reasonable. They can cut it down. Maybe depends on the size of the bill. For example, in the case against the AG's office, we had multiple lawyers involved. I had counsel from out of state. I was acting as local counsel for uh, Washington, D.C. lawyers, in this case, representing the DSCC. So, and it went on for three years and there were depositions taken and a lot of discovery and a lot of motion practice. And the application was for over $300,000 because that's the amount of time that was spent. Now, we haven't gotten a ruling on that yet, but we expect one in the next month, month and a half. But look, if we win, you know, again, that proves this can be quite expensive for a government to do things like this. But the sad part of this story is that Hawley himself gets away with it. You know, he got the office he wanted. He did not produce the documents that may have threatened his campaign at that time. And he basically shifts the burden of paying for his and the people that worked in his office. He shifts their mistake to the taxpayers. And that's one of the most unfortunate parts of how the system works. And that's why I think Joe was talking about earlier, there needs to be punishment for the people who did this. And whether or not they're civil service employees, they should be able to be disciplined or even terminated. So a violation of a sunshine law, whether you're in the city, in the county, or for state government, should be a cause to bring a civil service discipline against them on their record or terminate them because of what they did. That should be the rule. I've got the statute 610.027 in front of me, and I'm looking at subsection three and four next to each other, and I see there's a difference in one word about the attorney's fees. So on the knowing violation, it looks like the court may order the payment by such body or member of all costs and reasonable attorney's fees. And for purposeful, it says the court shall order the payment of all costs and reasonable attorney's fees. So I hadn't noticed that yet, but there's a difference in that. In federal courts, and I presume you probably argued this in your Holly case, you know, federal courts use the lodestar method in determining attorney's fees. And I would think that would be the appropriate starting point in this particular instance. But there is no guidance in the statute. But right. it seems to me is, we is the way you go about it. For those who aren't familiar with it, how does the Lodestar method work? Well, it's basically you take the number of hours work times a reasonable rate and come up with the amount of attorney's fees that way, the same way that firms such as mine would calculate the fee that they're going to charge their clients. And then the court has discretion to up or down it. Usually they down it a little bit saying that the fees are a little high. Maybe the rates are a little high or maybe the hours were duplicative or something like that. But that is what is supposed to guide the discretion of the court in cases where attorney's fees are sought in federal court. And I would think that that's a perfectly reasonable way to go about it in state court under Sunshine Law. 
And it is a huge problem that ultimately footing these bills is the public. So you're acting in the public interest to get this information, especially when you're purporting to represent the media asking for this information. And then you go in, you get it, and then you ask for $100,000 in attorney's fees. That's just not a position that most of our clients want to put themselves in, that you know we're acting in the public interest. But wait a minute now, you want $100,000 in fees to pay your attorney. So were you acting in the public interest or not? And I would say generally, I still think obviously it's in the public interest and to pay the lawyers, I think is more in the public interest because what it does is it incentivizes lawyers to bring cases. And what it creates is more transparency. And what does the public want? More transparency. So look, you're going to pay a little bit, just a tiny bit, the diffuse way to pay the attorney's fees for losing governments. But we already pay so much. I mean, we pay for other things that we don't get benefits from. I think this is a benefit that everyone's going to feel. And it's stuff they're going to read in the newspaper the next day. It's how they're going to get their news. And if they want to get news and know what's going on, this is a very, very small tax to pay, I think. But what the media doesn't want in the newspaper is that the media brought the suit and that they're asking for $100,000. And it's a great role that guys like Mark and Elad and others, Dave Rowland's been very involved in this. They're not in it. I mean, they practice to make money. You know, a lawyer's time is money. Abe Lincoln said that. But they're in it to get the records. That's what they want, the records. And if these public governmental bodies would just produce the records, we wouldn't have these problems. When the statute first came out, it was basically media entities that brought these actions. But now it's more and more, it's groups and citizens who are bringing these actions. They need to be incentivized to bring these actions. And public governmental bodies need to understand that there is a price for not complying with the statute. And that's why I commend what Mark and others like him do. And all those defendants out there right now in our active cases need to be very mindful for is that there is a tone change in the courts. And I I see it personally. There is much more engagement with Sunshine Law. Just the idea of transparency. People see what's going on, I think, generally in our country and these issues that we're facing where a lot of people feel that there's a degradation across the board. And there's a need to get in and start fighting for transparency to government records. And I'm seeing it now in judges a lot more, I think, than existed before. There's a real engagement. Judges are excited about these cases. They want them. They want to rule on them. They think they're important. And this tone change, I think, is frankly a threat to some of the status quo attorneys that work for government entities who think that, look, we're going to decline this request. We don't want to give them this information. It's probably going to be used against us in another civil rights case. Let's just lock it all up. It's not so easy anymore. People are being a lot more assertive and judges are, I think, giving a lot better rulings. And the attorney general's ruling was an example of that. I mean, I was surprised in many ways by how strong that ruling was in the findings against the attorney general from a fairly conservative Cole County court. So it's another example that for a lot of judges, transparency takes primacy over politics or whatever other considerations cost and otherwise. It's important to recognize that there are vagaries in some of these exemptions. Some of them are ambiguous and confusing. And sometimes there's points where you can have legitimate disagreements between the public governmental body and the requester. And the way that those should be resolved is by first negotiating and conferring about it, then working out some sort of stipulation as to what the legal issue is, and then presenting it to the court. The public governmental body can bring it by virtue of a declaratory judgment action, 
or the requester can bring it. But it can be worked out quickly, avoid a lot of these issues of lots of attorney's fees, knowing and purposeful violation, because both sides are acting in good faith. So there is room for public governmental bodies to prevent these large judgments that may follow for attorney's fees, and they're not going to be large for a knowing and purposeful violation. You're only talking about 5000 bucks in worst case. But there are ways to avoid that. So that is you know, one of the things you want to do right out of the box. If you're not trying to hide something, if you have legitimate disagreement as to whether something's a personnel record or whether it's a confidential attorney-client communication or pertains to litigation, you know, figure out where your differences are and present it to the court. And may I add, one of the most important things, I don't think we've discussed this yet, if you look at the preambular language of the statute, it's discretionary. So even though a government could close the record, you could also open the record. So just because you think it falls under one of those exceptions doesn't mean you have to close the record, unless it's a very rare case, like a social security number or something along those lines. So it gives you discretion from the outset. So again, back to what Joe said, if you think it's not that big of a deal to give the record, give the record. You're going to save yourself a whole lot of time. So it is discretionary. I think that a happens a lot. That. Personnel records may be the one area where it's a little more problematic because there you're dealing with personal information about an employee or something like that. But no, he's right. I mean, everyone who practiced in Sunshine Law litigation knew that these were discretionary, and they are. And you're right. If there's no reason to fight about it, don't fight about it. Don't fight you know, about just it. hand it over. And that's what we usually tell our clients who are public governmental bodies. So assume we're at the end of litigation. Now there's a possibility that it might resolve by summary judgment. How often does that happen? Or is it always a trial? No, it just happened. So, I mean, it happened in the AG case, uh, the Holly AG case. That was actually resolved pre-trial. Not only did we win on the issue that they violated the Sunshine Law, but we also won on it that it was knowing and purposeful. On summary judgment. On summary judgment. Now, that's maybe a little bit more unusual. A lot of times I file partial motions for summary judgment where I will try to seek a finding that they violated the Sunshine Law first, and then I'll take that, and then I'll go do discovery on the knowing and purposeful. So I'll sort of bifurcate it myself for different reasons, economic and otherwise. But you can win knowing a purposeful at the summary judgment stage. And we did, and they're not appealing that. Or you go to trial, and you could do the whole thing at trial. I would recommend that you do summary judgment on the issue of the violation, because I don't think there needs to be a ton of discovery done just with regard to, is this an open record or not? And then the knowing and purposeful, that requires discovery. Why did they not give this to you if they knew it was an open record? Was it a mistake? Was it an error of law? Was it a, again, a design to not give you something because they knew it would be, you know, in Joe's client's newspaper, right? That's sometimes the big reason that they don't want to give you something. So I would say there's many ways to win. If it's simply a point of law, you really shouldn't have to have a trial. It should be resolved either by stipulation between the parties if they're cooperating or by summary judgment brought by the requester. Oftentimes in the litigation I've been involved in where you're not dealing with a deliberately dilatory public governmental body, you can get it resolved fairly quickly. They may not agree to the stipulations, but you'll have a summary judgment and they'll dispute whatever facts they want to dispute. And you'll say they're immaterial or irrelevant. Don't raise a genuine dispute of material fact and get it resolved quickly. Are there any special rules that one might want to keep in mind regarding settlement when the other party is willing to talk to you? Or is it fairly straightforward? Is there anything practitioner might need to keep in mind in particular that is particular to these kinds of cases? Usually we get the records and there's a dismissal of the case. I've never had a formal settlement agreement, I don't think. 
We have settled cases pre-trial, not in substantial amounts, because I think they knew we were a few years in. We had, you know, over 100,000 in fees, and maybe there'd be a settlement slightly south of that number if they think they're going to lose. So we have had a, a few settlements where they've paid a substantial amount of the attorney's fees because they did not want to take maybe a losing case to trial. I would say the settlement agreements were fairly standard. There was a few occasions where they wanted non-disparagement and all these other things. And I told them, no, my client has a First Amendment right to disparage the government at any time. I'm not going to put that into a settlement agreement. So in any settlement agreement with the government, we reject out of hand any attempts to make the settlement confidential, which you can't, or make anything about it confidential or try to inhibit the First Amendment rights of the client. That would be the only thing I would keep an eye out for. Well, I didn't plan it this way, but it's uh, the year 2023. The Sunshine Act was first enacted in 1973. So we're at the 50th anniversary of the, of the Sunshine Act. So it might be a nice note to close on. It's been doing a lot of good work for 50 years. What month? Do we have a month and oh, a day? Oh, you want to know if it's today? Yeah, now probably been August, August 28th, wouldn't it? Is it August? Yeah, yeah I guess that the it date be. that Missouri statutes are usually effective? Okay. Well, I think we, I think so we, we didn't hit the day. Well, but, we need to celebrate this in yeah, some we get, way. We need a cake. <laughs> Anyway, thank you both for joining me for this conversation. It's been a good, vigorous conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Great. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed being with you and Joe. And it was a great conversation. All right. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith, and I'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.